3: It's 12.03.
1: You made it to Friday. It's February 4th, 2022. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour. I'm Rob Hart. Amazon continues to thrive in the pandemic. We'll cover that in our next segment. But right now, the government jobs report for January is a big surprise. Let's break it down with the help of Diane Swank, Chief Economist Grant Thornton, based in Chicago. Diane, thanks for joining us once again. At 10.20, you brought up a very interesting point about uh, just who drove this uh, sudden surge in hiring or what appeared to be a sudden surge in hiring in the month of January, despite Omicron and other disruptive factors. And you said that is because a lot of companies just kept their temporary workers. And at least for now, they're no longer temporary.
0: Exactly. What we saw was many companies, especially in the leisure and hospitality sector, retail, low-wage sector, transportation, warehousing, they did not fire people like they usually do. The seasonal hires that they hire up for the holiday season, they kept them on in the month of January. One, because... They already are facing acute labor shortages and they wanted to keep some of those workers and make them more permanent, but two, because they had to make up for people who were out sick. We had a record breaking 3.6 million people who were absent from work just because they were out sick alone. That tops the 2 million that we hit that was the previous peak in May of 2020. So really this is um, a very different kind of economy where we're holding on to seasonal hires. We just didn't fire as many people as we usually do in January, and that helped to buoy the numbers. Now, there are some sectors that are exceeding. Previous peaks hit in February of 2020. We're still down 1.8 million jobs in the leisure and hospitality sector, mostly in food services. A lot of restaurants have just gone out of business, and that. Sort of, it really is a sad commentary on where we're at. On the flip side, we're seeing in professional hires, highway jobs, and information technology, and in transportation and warehousing and finance, all of those have exceeded their pre crisis peaks in terms of employment. And we're also seeing very rapid wage increases there as well. So I think it's really important to sort of delineate between low wage workers, high wage workers, and just how much the pandemic has distorted all the usual behaviors we see it's just not the same world it was pre-pandemic.
1: Here is a morbid question and that is regarding the number of jobs we have now versus the number of jobs that existed in February of 2020. Do the any of the do the official labor statistics or is there any scholarship about how the fact that 800,000 people plus have died of COVID in the last two years. And those are 800,000 people who all had jobs and how that could potentially impact the labor market and just the number of jobs that are available.
0: Actually, it is really important. It's not the 800,000, because many of those were older workers, although the over 65 crowd, we did see retirements accelerate and less participation by them. But that also could affect those workers, because a lot of older workers were hit. People who are older were most vulnerable to the earlier deaths. The subsequent waves, especially the Delta wave over the summer, hit more prime age workers, and that actually cut into the labor force a bit. And I think that's very important to point out. We lost about 140,000 excess deaths, as far as we can tell. Wall Street Journal actually just did an analysis of this, and that is 140,000 fewer people between the ages of 25 and 54 that are no longer in the waiver force because they perished due to the pandemic. And that is something that we know historically pandemics have done is fatalities tended to be higher among younger people, but that's not, that's also before we begin, to include things like long COVID, which is affecting disproportionately um, frontline workers as well, and that's where labor shortages are the most. So you start to see why we're having some of the distortions we're having is because of, in fact, fatalities. In fact, fatalities globally, if you look at excess deaths, many developing economies don't count just the deaths as accurately as we do related to COVID or related to COVID um, sickness even overdoses because of mental health. But if we look at the excess deaths across the world, we're now looking at fatalities in this pandemic that are approaching those of previous pandemics. And that's what tends to constrain labor supply. At the same time, we don't have the same movement of people across borders that we once did, which is further suppressing labor force growth in those prime age workers.
1: Diane Swank, Chief Economist, Grant Thornton. Thanks for joining us. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Amazon has issued its fourth quarter earnings report, and there's a lot to digest in it. We're joined by Dan Gallagher, tech reporter for the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column based in San Francisco. Dan, thanks for joining us today. Well, Amazon, I don't know if you want to call it the hair of the dog, but it certainly did uh, uh, help break the Facebook-related tech hangover that was uh, hanging over the markets yesterday.
4: Uh, It sure did. I mean, the shares are up 15% now today, and uh, I mean, what's interesting about it is that it wasn't a fabulous report in a lot of respects. You know, they it was it was just, it was slow sales growth, and they warned of another quarter of very slow sales growth. And this is the like the slowest period this company's had in um, in probably almost two decades um, in in terms of growth. But you know, their earnings were better than expected, and oddly enough, I think investors are reacting to the fact that the price for the prime service is actually going up.
1: And uh, what is it about, um, you know, Amazon Prime and the market for Amazon Prime uh, that they feel they can raise the price on people, and yet, uh, you know, the actual product sales were slowing down?
4: Well, I think that's you see a lot of companies enter this phase where, you know, growth, you know, you get into a slower growth phase, and so it's a time to start focusing on, on helping profits. Um, I think with Amazon Prime, and the company has not raised the prices a ton. This is the first race since 2018, and it's actually lower percentage-wise than they did that time. Um, But they've also done a lot to the service in that period. And now you get – they now have same-day and one-day delivery uh, available in a lot of instances in a lot of places. I mean, ironically, yesterday when I was writing the report, uh, a delivery that I had ordered the night before – um, arrived at my door, um, and that's quicker than they've normally gotten. And I, th- and that's because Amazon's made so many investments in their delivery infrastructure that the Prime service, that also includes, let's not forget, a video streaming service, music, and all these other bells and whistles. Uh, they feel there's a lot of value there that they can still be
1: competitive with. And once again, uh, the, the the part of Amazon that most people don't see, Amazon Web Services, which is such a massive hosting facility for basically the entire Internet. In some ways, you can say the Internet is Amazon Web Services. Uh, they generated fairly hefty profits in, in Q4.
4: Yeah, they. in fact, their profits, I think, stabilized. There was some concern about that because that's that's also a very competitive business. Microsoft is doing very well in the cloud and, and, and picking up a share there. You know, Google's going after it. A lot of big tech companies are going after that. Um, but their their profit margins, especially in the cloud, actually remained which showed they still have pricing power uh, there. And that's a very important part because as as Amazon grows that business, that's a far more profitable business than the retail side, and it helps the company's overall margins by a significant degree.
1: Dan Gallagher, tech reporter for the Wall Street Journal's Heard on the Street column based in San Francisco. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up next, United Airlines has a plan to deal with a pilot shortage.
3: Money conversation that pays a big dividend. The WBBM Noon Business
1: Hour continues. Chicago-based United Airlines, among the many airlines dealing with a shortage of pilots. Now the company has a strategy to staff cockpits. Let's learn more from Ken Goldstein, President KJG International Consultant based in Chicago. Ken, thanks for joining us today. It's the United Aviate Academy. It opened yesterday outside of Phoenix. And uh, how will this turn uh, flying enthusiasts into pilots?
5: Well, the idea uh, advocated by Scott Kirby when they opened it uh, earlier this week on the 27th was to encourage more people to fly and specifically have a pipeline, if you will, back into United Airlines. Now, it isn't for free. You've got to apply. They will help with tuition reimbursement and scholarships. And the idea was to get uh, people who are family members of United who are there could go. Uh, the idea is also to get members, minority members, people of color, women, etc., to get to learn how to fly. It's a year-long program, and uh, it's a good program because what it does is it gives you the basic training program uh, – start. And then from there, you can go into the regional carriers, which is where the critical shortage is. Those are the carriers like Mesa Air Wisconsin, who fly the short haul r- ramps, runs for United, like from O'Hare to Appleton. And that's where the pilots are needed initially. Plus, it allows the pilots or the trainees, they have to get 15, hour, 100 hours flying time before they be- can become an airline pilot, but allows them to build up Hours as they climb up the ladder through United's regional carriers up until United.
1: How does this differ from, say, you know, going to a aviation program at a Lewis University or an Embry Riddle?
5: Well, they're almost very similar. Uh, Embry Riddle is a great school. They have one down in Arizona, uh, Florida, etc. Lewis uh, in the Chicago area is very good. Uh, The University of Illinois, Southern Illinois, has a program and allows you to pick up hours, which is the key here. You've got to get those 1,500 hours flight time to go there uh, to become an airline pilot. Uh, all these programs are good. I think United is what they're doing is trying to focusing a little bit more. And actually, in some degree, although they have a flight school, which ironically used to be the Lufthansa flight school down in Goodyear, Arizona, which United got uh, from Lufthansa, and Germans pilot unions are very upset that Lufthansa sold it because since 1955, prospective Lufthansa pilots have completed their first year of practical training in the desert climate of Goodyear, which is we down here you have pretty much uh, blue sky most of the time, so it's good flying weather. But again, all these are good things. Just the key for people to understand is that, A, it's not totally free, It's not you can get a scholarship and get some tuition reimbursement, but it'll be a cost. It hopefully will minimize the cost. American has a similar program. It's called a a Cadet Cadet Academy. JetBlue has a similar program. Uh, As we talked about a few weeks ago, Delta has lowered its standard from uh, you can have a high school education instead of what used to be four years of college. The old place where most of the pilots came from was the military. Well, the military is doing its best to retain its pilots, and they're giving them incentives to stay there because they take a pretty long investment in getting someone to learn how to fly. But again, this is a good step and a good program for the listeners if they have someone who's interested in flying to get involved with.
7: and great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.
3: This is Chicago's all-news station, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues.
1: Good afternoon, I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Ready to Go, WBBM. It's a rough weather day across much of the U.S. This is Mike Krauser, a person seen walking well
3: out on the ice of Lake Michigan on the south side, tells first responders he didn't realize he was on the lake.
1: In Entrepreneur Friday, we meet the co-founder of a bean-to-bar chocolate maker that's thriving in the suburbs northwest of Chicago. Oil prices have topped the $90 a barrel mark for the first time in eight years. WBBM business. The markets are higher. The Dow is up 21 points. The Nasdaq is up 238. The S&P 500 is up 33. Accu. Weather says very cold today with some sunshine for a while, then clouds, a couple of snow showers toward the afternoon drive home, at a high today of 23. Right now we have 22 degrees at O'Hare at 12 31, topping our news at the half hour. The major winter snowstorm that's battered much of the country just about over. The latest from correspondent Rita Foley. The
0: powerful storm's been dumping a foot or more of snow on parts of New York, Pennsylvania, and Vermont after doing the same in areas of the Midwest. Just yesterday, ICE knocked out power to thousands of homes and businesses from Ohio to Texas. Thousands of airline flights are being canceled, including at airports in New York City, Boston, and Dallas. Some schools have been closing, and authorities have been warning drivers about possibly dangerous roads. The National Weather Service says this storm is on its way out to sea. That'll happen late today or tomorrow. I'm Rita Foley.
1: We're learning more about what a person may have been thinking when he walked about a quarter mile onto Lake Michigan ice this morning. The story from WBBM's Mike Krauser. The person, a college student, was spotted on the ice off 55th Street. Fire department spokesman Larry Langford says somehow he didn't know he was on the ice. The fire department and the police marine unit responded on foot.
7: We went out and rescued him. We got him off the ice, got him back to to firm ground, and he was a bit mystified. According to our, uh, our Marine commander, uh, he, he thought he was on firm ground. He had no idea he was on Lake Michigan. The young man is a college student. He's not from around here. He's a foreign student. And he was just exploring a little bit and thought he was walking around in a park.
1: This could have ended badly for the student. Lake ice is constantly shifting
3: with the movement of the water. The fire department warns do not ever go out on Lake Michigan ice. That's the story from the lakefront.
1: It's 1232 as the noon business hour continues. Markets are uh, now in positive territory. We're joined by Brian Battle, director at Performance Trust Capital Partners and advisor at PT Asset Management based in Chicago. Brian, thanks for joining us this morning. This afternoon, I should say this morning, it was kind of funny uh, to watch in the minutes after the uh, January jobs number was uh, was released uh, in the seconds or minutes after 730 local time, uh, watching the Dow futures uh, take the down elevator, because it sounds like investors were holding out hope that maybe a a bad January jobs report would prompt the Fed to pump the brakes on interest rate hikes.
3: That's exactly right, Rob. So good news was bad news safe for the market, but we have recovered. So there's a, the, the economic st- statistics are really a mess these days for a couple of reasons. First of all, we turned the economy off two years ago. So people, everybody went home, nobody worked. Then we had government stimulus, which, which encouraged people to stay home and maybe not at the margin, not work as much. So that's muddying the statistics, and then especially here in January, the first Friday of the month, we always get the unemployment number, and in the number, there are revisions. So in January, a lot of people typically get laid off because all the Christmas workers um, aren't needed anymore, but there weren't as many people hired, so not as many people got laid off. There was also some revisions for population growth. So the unemployment number, everybody thought it was going to be terrible, was really good today which gives, as you said, some concern that maybe interest rates are going to go higher. And we have seen the bond market sell off a little bit today. Rates are higher in the, across the curve in treasuries. And the stock market is selling off but and recovering. But most of the news, let's take some long-term perspective. You know, year-to-date, the S&P is down five, about 5.5%, maybe. NASDAQ, more than that, almost 9.5%. But over the last year, the S&P is up 16%. Um, We are seeing some pressure in the high-tech names because they have rallied like crazy the past two years. And the, the big names in the NASDAQ are the ones that are driving the market higher, like Apple, Microsoft. Tesla, NVIDIA, you know, those names have driven us really high. They got really expensive, and some sell-off there might be healthy, but most of the sell-off is focused in those really big, high-tech headline names.
1: The tech sector really is uh, taking its lumps uh, in the month of January, and there seemed to be a leveling off at the very beginning of February, and then uh, uh, Facebook Meta reported earlier this week, and the NASDAQ took a dive and took the rest of the market with it yesterday. Um, the psychology surrounding Amazon's, Uh, report yesterday, Um, was it just a, a tech sector that was hungry for good news or was there something deeper?
3: Yeah, Facebook meta was an unmitigated disaster. So there's just, there's no two ways about that. So doubt in a name, you know, some of these names that have just been exalted and just keep going higher and higher has put some doubt in the market. Amazon recovered because their sales numbers weren't great, but they had their increase in their subscription. So that's a real high revenue stream. Amazon's a company that kind of that makes money um, a couple of different ways. Um, their web services business is very strong. Um, their shipping stuff to your house business isn't as strong or isn't as durable or certainly there's more vagaries around putting stuff in a warehouse and driving it to your front door. Web services and cloud services is something that's super durable and something that's at the margin can be very, very uh, profitable once you have the infrastructure established. So, yeah, the market is looking for a good story. Amazon was a great story. We are in here, we so we're getting some news about where real businesses think their companies are going. And a lot of the market back and forth. And this isn't going to go away. Um, it, we have left an economic Um, disaster in 2021 and for the first time in 10 years the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates and we have to figure out how this all happens. We've never done this before So this sequence is going to be unique and how it plays out. So it's going to be a bumpy ride. You know, in in December, everything was great. And in January, everything was a disaster. So um, it's going to be more of that because we've never exited these kind of circumstances before.
1: Thanks for joining us. Brian Battle, Director of Performance Trust Capital Partners and Advisor at PT Asset Management based in Chicago. Up next, an Entrepreneur Friday, a sweet success story from the northwest suburbs. The best daily deal in Chicago, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's Entrepreneur Friday and just in time for Valentine's Day, we're putting the spotlight on a suburban candy maker. We welcome in Michael Irvin, the co-founder of Ethereal Confections based in Woodstock, right along Woodstock's downtown square. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Tell us the story of Ethereal Confections. You and your business partners uh, opened the business in 2011. And uh, first off, you know, how did you get into chocolate making? How'd you go from being a chocolate enthusiast uh, to someone who actually wanted to make
2: the product? Well, it certainly starts with eating a lot of chocolate and then it's kind of seeing what the, you know, I've always wanted to, when I see something I like, I want to be able to do more of it myself. And so getting into chocolate was really about realizing the dream of getting into the things that you love. So we started small with uh, just roasting our own beans in our own oven at home and suddenly it's 10 years later and we <laughs> have a much bigger building than that.
1: And then when you started, you know, getting the actual materials for chocolate making um, did you were you surprised at how much of a process that is, or were you pretty well well versed in the in the chocolate making process before doing it yourself?
2: Well, there's no manual on how to start making chocolate. Only really big companies uh, until very recently could could do this and so it, child and slave labor are endemic to cacao growing in production. And what really set us apart was we'd made a commitment early on to going to origin, to going to Africa, going to South America and Central America, meeting with farmers and forming meaningful relationships with them and bringing the beans here. So that's the start of it, but then there's a lot of machines and a lot of roasting, so it, it's to do it from bean to bar is a is a multi-step process that we had to learn one step at a time and make. We made a lot of mistakes along the long way. Luckily, the uh, disasters could also be delicious.
1: <laughs> and then, and then, when you wound up in uh, the Woodstock Town Square, I mean, was that uh, on purpose or was that a, a stroke of luck?
2: We started here primarily because the the rent was low. We could get a smallest four hundred square foot space. That we could be in and we could start our business and we didn't have to worry about rents coming every single month and it's high and we can't meet it. So it was, it was partly selection just because it's a nice quality of life here, but also just trying to make sure that our business was set up on a, a good footing to begin with.
1: So that means uh, as, as a confectionary, a chocolate maker, somebody who makes things that one could give to, give to a loved one or a significant other on Valentine's Day, February is already a big month for you. But because you're in the Woodstock Town Square, where 30 years ago this year uh, they filmed the movie Groundhog Day, I'm guessing you do a lot of business with people who are trying to channel their own uh, Phil Connors or Ned Ryerson.
2: Absolutely. It's the first year we were here, we were just making chocolate day and suddenly there was a line outside the door and we didn't know what was going on. And as we as, we, as we now have been here for 10 years, uh, it's, it's certainly part of the community and it's exciting to be part of that. There's a lot of people who come from all over the world because... Groundhog Day. The movie means a lot to them. They got engaged, and, and they can kind of come and relive relive portions of the movie here.
1: Now you uh, you you have this business where you 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 are informed about where your products come from. You have this uh, relationship with suppliers that uh, extends across continents. You have a small business in a town square uh, at a time when online sales and people are moving away from actually going to a store. Uh, what is it like being a business owner? Uh, with those types of relationships and in these types of business conditions,
2: yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting uh, subject. So for the international, it obviously travel has been crimped in the last few years. And um, in countries in Africa and Central South America, they don't have masks. They don't have uh, the, the, the resources that we have here. So a lot of what we do is on uh, online, actually. We do Skype or we use um, uh, WhatsApp or something like that to commun- communicate with them. And it's really made a, a pivot in our business. We always had an online business. and We always had uh, retailers that sell our chocolate. We actually supply over 100 Uh, Breweries across North America with chocolate ingredients to make porters and stouts and things of that nature that has become more and more important to us And this year. We've really been pushing to grow that part of the business because we can't control uh, lockdowns or the people coming in the door today. We, We can control uh, working with the retailers and other businesses. So that's really been a shift in our focus uh, the last, for sure the last two years.
1: Well, thanks for joining us. Michael Irvin, co-founder of Ethereal Confections in Woodstock, Illinois, right along Woodstock's downtown square, where uh, next year will be the 30th anniversary of the release of the movie Groundhog Day. And chances are he'll do some fairly brisk business on February 2nd, 2023. Still to come, tracking the surge in oil prices. Loaning useful information
3: each weekday. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues.
1: And for the first time since 2014, U.S. oil prices have crossed above $90 a barrel. Let's update the energy markets with Phil Flynn, Senior Market Analyst with the Price Group and Fox Business News contributor based in Chicago. Phil, above and beyond supply and demand, and there's a lot of demand and not as much supply as there used to be. What are some of the
7: uh, factors playing into the price of oil these days? You know, I think it's really, Rob, an anti-fossil fuel mentality that has, you know, come across the globe. Um, uh, We've demonized investment in fossil fuels. You know, we tell everybody we need to get more green. We need to build less pipelines. But the world still needs fossil fuels. So um, we're seeing, for example, in the U.S., oil production is about 2 million barrels lower than it was just a couple of years ago. That's a day. But yet our demand is breaking record high. So because of this lack of investment and this green energy push, you're seeing the results of this situation where the market is not responding to the uptick in demand.
1: But with $90 a barrel uh, oil, uh, that's going to bring a lot of people, a lot of producers who are on the sidelines. They're going to come rushing back in there because they can actually make money uh, exploring and, and trying
7: to find oil and producing it you're absolutely right that's the way it's supposed to work it's supposed to attract those dollars but it but the problem is is that now, um, because of uh, in this country, for example, the Biden administration, John Kerry is telling banks, don't lend money to fossil fuel companies, you know, lend money to green energy companies. Uh, the Federal Reserve, for example, is trying to make companies be more responsible for their carbon footprint. And all of that discourages money into the fuels, even though rig counts are going up, production isn't growing. and if we don't invest in U.S. oil and gas, um, the production is going to fall, and we're going to be more dependent on OPEC to to get, get us through the day when it comes to oil supply.
1: Well, let's talk about OPEC because they want to increase their March production by 400,000 barrels a day. Um, they want to make money, but you know how reliable of a partner is OPEC? Because historically, they've made life uh, sometimes a rather inconvenient for the American driver. Mm-hmm.
7: They have, you know, like uh, trusting OPEC, you know, you know, it's like trusting the Hamburglar, right? You never know what you're going to get, you know. Uh, no, you can't trust OPEC. And, you know, listen, the bottom line is, is that OPEC in the past has um, moved on the, from U.S. pressure in the past. President Donald Trump put a lot of pressure on OPEC, getting them to raise production. It worked back then. The Biden administration has not had any excess partly because the Biden administration fails to recognize Crown Prince bin Salman, who is the leader of OPEC in Saudi Arabia. Everybody knows he's not a nice guy, but when he controls the oil output from OPEC, you might want to give the guy a call and see if you can get him to go your way. But the Biden administration won't even talk to him.
1: Thanks for joining us, Phil Flynn, Senior Market Analyst with The Price Group and Fox Business News contributor based in Chicago. You'll find past programs later today, a podcast of this hour at WBBMNewsRadio.com and the Odyssey app.
7: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours.